The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Brass Monkeys Traditionally, the phrase brass monkeys goes hand in hand with weather so cold that only a naughty-sounding description like it's cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey will suffice. Whilst the true origin of this nautical quip has faded into the mists of time, there were plenty of objects that were nicknamed monkeys, including a small single-masted trading vessel, a small wooden cask for grog, a type of marine engine, a fast-climbing sailor, a canal narrowboat, a tight and short jacket, a small mast, a block used as part of the rigging, a type of cannon, a short hand spike used for aiming a carronade, and the boy who carries the powder up to the guns of a fighting ship, to name just a few. It's widely believed that the phrase refers to the dimpled brass plate used to hold a pyramid of iron cannonballs ready for use. When the weather was cold enough, the unequal contraction of iron and brass would shrink the brass monkey sufficient to dislodge the shot, thereby freezing the balls off. If, however, you were the crew member of a NATO aircraft in Europe during the tense times of the Cold War, brass monkeys meant something very specific. It was a code phrase that everyone knew of and listened out for on the guard frequency, just in case it was broadcast. The Cold War was something of an arms race, and both sides were hopeful that by accident or design they might get their hands on some valuable items of military hardware that they could examine to get an edge on their opponents. The latest fighter jets were a prize truly worth yearning for, but as rare as hen's teeth, certainly for the Soviets. We in the West had the advantage of being in a place where defectors actually wanted to go to, since it was rare for Allied pilots in Europe to defect to the Soviet side, they tried tactics to lure them over the East German border, such as pretending to be a friendly controller and giving false instructions to head east, or meconning NATO navigation beacons. This was a technique of broadcasting false navigation signals imitating and overpowering friendly beacons so that the aircraft's equipment would give false readings. As a counter to such techniques and the more likely effect of simple navigational errors by pilots, NATO enforced a 30-mile buffer zone on their side of the East German border penetration of which was forbidden. Should any Western aircraft be seen to enter this buffer zone, the call went out on the distress frequency, guard, brass monkeys. On hearing this, standing orders required that, regardless of where you thought you were, every Allied aircraft was to turn and head west. Every single NATO pilot that intended to operate in European NATO airspace was so briefed. 
what occasioned the adoption of the Brass Monkey's call were a number of embarrassing incidents, such as the 1961 Luftwaffe Thunderstreak incident. From 1956 onwards, the West German Air Force had equipped with a considerable number of F-84s and RF-84s, totaling 558 airframes. At the time, violations of the airspace on both sides of the border was fairly common, and whilst about two NATO aircraft a month strayed across, in the four weeks between August and September of 1961, 38 Soviet aircraft penetrated West German airspace. What's more, until German reunification in 1990, the Luftwaffe was forbidden to fly to the western-occupied zones of Berlin. The incident started when NATO held exercise checkmate, and thunderstreaks from the Bavarian airbase at Lechfeld were tasked to fly a navigation route from Würzburg to Lyon in France and then to Memmingham. It was, according to a contemporary account from other Lechfeld aircrew, the simplest thing in the world. Unbeknown to the two luckless pilots that attempted it on this day, a radio compass error of some 50 degrees in the leader's aircraft, plus a strong wind from the west, ensured that they didn't even complete their first leg. On the way to Lyon, they mistook Liège in Belgium for Reims in France. Somewhere over Cologne in West Germany, the two pilots now made a turn towards the east. This put them right on course to cross the border into East Germany and on to Berlin, via some of the most heavily defended airspace anywhere in the world. They were then picked up by NATO radar sites heading east towards South Berlin. Twice they missed calls telling them to turn around as they were talking amongst themselves trying to establish their position. However, the East Germans and their Soviet allies were already well aware of what was happening and had sent up interceptors to catch them soon after they penetrated communist airspace. Reportedly no fewer than 42 fighter jets, consisting of various kinds of MiGs, had been scrambled from Soviet air bases in East Germany. But the F-84s were protected by thick layers of cloud. It was only when they recognised that they were north of Leipzig, deep within East German airspace, and now being chased by a large number of Soviet fighters, did they realise the magnitude of their error. Before the MiGs had a chance to catch the NATO jets, the intruders were over Berlin airspace, where the four powers, France, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and the United States, exercised joint control of the airspace since the end of World War II. They declared a mayday, and realising the danger the pilots were in, a controller from the Berlin Air Route Traffic Control Centre ordered them not to turn around and face the swarm of threatening Soviets, but head for Berlin's Tegel Airport. By hiding in the cloud cover and using their speed, they remained ahead of the threat and headed for the airport. 
At 3.29 local in the afternoon, the two thunderstreaks touched down safely at Tegel in Berlin's French sector. Soviet authorities remained silent for a few days before officially protesting against the West German provocation and threatening to shoot down aircraft if the incident were ever repeated. But the Soviet air command in East Germany was less than impressed with the unpunished flight of two Western fighter planes through their airspace. However, it chose to blame the bad weather for the incident rather than the failure of its ground control to intercept the Luftwaffe aircraft. Herr Willibrandt, whose third-hand Mercedes I once owned, but that's another story, the mayor of Berlin was furious that the two pilots violated international conventions in a time of strained relations between the East and the West and, in response... Senior Luftwaffe officers announced that any commander whose unit violated international borders would be immediately replaced. This was dubbed Beer Order 61, as it had been formulated late at night over a few steins. The two thunderstreaks were hidden in hangars, and rumours abounded as to their fate. Had they been repainted in United States Air Force markings and returned? Were they dismantled and transported back in pieces? It wasn't until 1970 that the truth emerged, when the aircraft were accidentally discovered buried on the airfield. The pilots involved were removed from flying duties and transferred to become ground crew. Eleven months after this incident, the Soviet threat to shoot down aircraft violating the border was realised, when the Bundesmarine Seahawk was engaged by MiG-21 fighters when it accidentally crossed into East Germany. Captain Lieutenant Winkler was returning from a training exercise aboard the US Navy carrier Saratoga. He successfully landed his crippled aircraft at an airfield near Bremen, where it was found to be so badly damaged that it was written off. Winkler was unharmed and went on to fly F-104 fighters, but was sadly killed in an accident a few years later. In 1964, a similar incident, in which a US Air Force T-39 Sabreliner training jet flew into East German airspace, which ended up with the American jet being shot down by a MiG and its three crew members killed. Two years later, a similar fate befell a U.S. Air Force RB-66 destroyer reconnaissance jet, although its crew survived. Years later, a friend of mine, whom I shall call Ricky Locke, was called into his boss's office for what he assumed was his weekly carpeting, but instead was asked if he fancied a few days in Goodersloe, the furthest east of the RAF bases in West Germany. He assumed that this might involve working with some Harrier dudes and inevitably handing them their backsides, but apparently his boss was in the dark as to what was required. All he could tell him was that Ricky, a small cog in the Lightning Squadron's hierarchy, but senior enough to authorise his own flights, and a junior pilot, would be met and briefed on arrival. 
The next Monday they landed at Goodersloe, completing the entire flight without air-to-air refuelling something of an achievement for the Lightning, and were oddly directed to the visiting aircraft section apron to be met by a rather long-haired civilian in his mid-thirties, all very strange. He introduced himself as squadron leader something or other. Really? And he led them across the apron to a helicopter, and they all jumped in the back. The helicopter was jammed full with all sorts of weird electronic equipment, the like of which they'd never seen before, and this is where it got interesting. In the privacy of the helicopter, the strange squadron leader briefed them that the East Germans had a new military computer system that was capable of assessing threats, identifying targets, and allocating resources, etc. Over the next few days, the Warsaw Pact would be holding an air defence exercise, and, don't ask me how, our side had devised a way into the computer... In order to allow the boffins to assess this computer, their job was to provoke the East Germans by flying towards the border as fast as they could. That is the sort of thing that a fighter pilot doesn't need to be told twice. The authority for the exercise, they were told, came right from the top and very few people knew anything about it. They were also given the name of a very senior RAF officer and told to refer any questions to him. Because of the sensitivity of the operation, they weren't allowed to stay in the officer's mess and mingle with the riffraff. Instead, they were billeted downtown in a swish hotel on allowances. Good news! The next morning at Met Briefing, the Harrier pukes, many of whom they knew personally, barely acknowledged them, probably having been told to steer clear. But it was obvious that they were desperate to know what was up. Ricky filed a VFR flight plan and was given clearance ahead of a Harrier 4 ship to take off on the easterly runway. He departed in full reheat, blasting off the end of the runway and stayed in full reheat, heading east. Goodersloe wasn't that far from the border, so the following Harriers must have realised that something unusual was going on. NATO aircraft were not normally permitted to fly within 30 miles of the border, the start of the buffer zone. To fly into the buffer zone could make people very unhappy. Ten miles from the border was the Air Defence Identification Zone, or ADIS. Flying into the ADIS could be a bad idea, firstly because the same people who were unhappy about flying into the buffer zone would be absolutely livid about one entering the ADIS. Secondly, no matter how fast your aircraft, there would always be someone on the ground with a missile that was faster. Two or three minutes into the flight, Ricky was supersonic and climbing through 20,000 feet or so when the first Brass Monkeys call came over the radio. Brass Monkeys! Brass Monkeys! Aircraft heading east at high speed 50 miles east of Goodersloe. Brass Monkeys! He ignored it. Leveling at about 40,000 feet at Mach 1.3, he watched the Tacan beacon as the range rolled over. 
He needed to time this very carefully. He had no wish to cross the border and be engaged by a Soviet surface-to-air missile, but he had been told he needed to be well into the 80s to provoke a response. The brass monkey's calls were now coming thick and fast, so he turned guard off. He was concentrating. Guessing he was now entering the Aedis, he turned north. At Mach 1.3, the turning circle was significant, and Ricky was wary of drifting too far east by mistake. When he rolled out on the new heading, for the first time he pulled the throttles back and slowed to subsonic speed to save a little fuel, and then he saw them. Two shiny dots with their accompanying contrails flying about five miles to the east of him on a parallel track. Russian-built MiG fighters, probably MiG-21s. They stayed with him for about 20 miles until he peeled off to the west, a manoeuvre that he'd discussed before to confuse the opposition. After a few minutes, assuming the MiGs had now lost interest, he turned east again, accelerating to supersonic speed once more and began climbing. Because he was only wearing a flight suit and not a fancy pressure suit, Ricky was theoretically limited to 56,000 feet, so of course he didn't go any higher than that. On reaching the Aders, he turned south and within a few minutes had company again, this time on his left and below him. No doubt they were desperate, as he would have been, for the interloper to cross into their airspace so they could point out to him the error of his ways. Sadly, the limiting factor of a lightning pilot was invariably intelligence, uh, I'm sorry, fuel. So after less than an hour, he had to head home. On landing, he was met by a very unhappy operations officer who rushed him into an office. Apparently, OC Ops wanted to talk with him, and he had better have a good story. He's apoplectic. He picked the phone up, dialed a number, and handed him the receiver. Good afternoon, sir. Flight Lieutenant Locke speaking. You can imagine the tirade he listened to, but the last thing he heard before OC Ops paused to draw breath was, What the hell did you think you were doing? It was a sweet moment. I'm sorry, sir. I must refer you to... And he gave him the name of the very senior RAF officer. Silence followed. You mean this has been authorized? I'm sorry, sir. Once again, I will have to refer you to the very senior RAF officer. It was the first and only time that Ricky Locke had ever been called in for a bollocking and come out on top. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show, and you can find out all about that brilliant podcast at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales as a standalone podcast, then how about leaving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.